Well, look at your neighbor and smile really big. I mean really big, all right? Smile really big. And then turn to Job chapter 3. Because that smiles like the last thing you're gonna that's encouraging that you're gonna see when you get into Job chapter three. I promise you, Job chapter three is no one's favorite chapter in the Bible. I promise you that no one has their life verse based on any verse in life in Job three. And you'll see how ironic that would be to have a life verse from Job three as we go through it. So let me begin and ask you this. Have you ever been so sad? Have you ever suffered so much? Have you ever endured so much pain or felt so hopeless and helpless that you just wanted to lie down and die? Life, it seemed, had been sucked out of you. Death, maybe, had hit a little too close to home. Or maybe your loss was so personal, so permanent, that your heart was broken and your will to live was gone. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Perhaps the memory is even hard to uh, bring up. I remember when my mom was dying several years ago. At first, I simply went with the flow and rode the wave, you know, hospital visits here, this, that, and... And what came to be 10 months of uninterrupted uh, hospitalization, she moved from different places but never got out. Then one day I just came home and I just sat down on the couch and I can remember it, it so clearly. And I just said to Gwen, I said, my mom is dying. And then I just started sobbing and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed as Gwen held me. When Gwen here recently experienced her brokenness, I've had times where I've simply wailed. Uh, there's really no other word for it. It's just wailing. Or as the Bible calls it, lament. It's more than crying. It's more than weeping. You're lamenting what's happening and how your heart is breaking, how your world is being turned upside down and seemingly inside out. So have you been there? Are you there now? Or is what I'm describing something you haven't experienced or someone you loved haven't experienced but your worst fear? Well, this morning we're going to look at Job 3. And as you look at that chapter, we're going to hear his cry of despair. It's going to be, it's his curse and his lament over all that he suffered. And it's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be easy. And to be quite honest with you, it will be a little uncomfortable. If you have been where I've described or where Job is in this chapter, then you're going to, you're going to, it's going to ring true to you and perhaps a little too true. And you're going to say, you know what? I don't want to go back to that place. And if it hits too close to home, it might have a frightening familiarity of what you're presently going through. But let me say this. If you've been a spectator to this kind of anguish in the lives of others, but you've only seen it from a distance, then you probably are not going to relate to Job chapter 3 or even to this lesson. In fact, you might be confused by it and say, you know, I really, I just don't get it. I don't understand. 
But I want to tell you this about Job's cry of despair. This chapter, though it's not comfortable, not easy, not pretty, and perhaps confusing, it is comforting. And the comfort comes from this. Knowing that someone as godly and blameless as Job has been where you've been or where you never want to go, and he survived. And that's good news. That's good news. Well, let's look. Where are we in the book of Job? Because we're making a major transition into chapter 3. And I want you to see four things. First of all, we've left the narrative section of chapters 1 and 2, and we've entered the poetical the poetical section, which is the largest section of the book, and it goes from chapters 3 to 42. Basically, the rest of the book. Not entirely. The ending will have a little bit of narrative. And so it's poetical, which means it's not always easy to understand, and which also means you can't just analyze it verse by verse. It's poetry. You read it. You experience it. And some of it's going to be hard to understand. And let me just be honest with you. Sometimes the answer to what you don't understand is this. It's poetry. Okay? So as we move through the rest of the book, we're, not, we're, we're going to have to cover large chunks. And it's not like going through the epistles of Paul uh, where you analyze it. It's poetical. Number two, God is done speaking. God is done speaking and will not speak again until chapter 38. That's pretty important to remember. That's pretty important to remember. Now, there's five main characters that have spoken so far or are about to speak in the book of Job. We've seen in his sovereignty, Yahweh has talked very purposefully to the adversary about Job. In his hostility, the adversary has talked very arrogantly to God about Job. In her negativity, Job's wife has talked very foolishly to Job on behalf of the adversary without knowing it. In their superiority, Job's friends are about to talk very ignorantly to Job about God. But here's what I want you to get. In his integrity, Job is always talking honestly, no matter who he's talking to. In his integrity, Job is talking honestly to God, to his wife, and to his friends. And yes, in Job chapter 3, a man with integrity is speaking honestly. Humanly. With deep hurt and heartbreak. Number three, we're in the realm of human words. Because God's done speaking... We're in the realm of human words and wisdom about God's sovereignty, God's sin, or not God's sin, sorry, God's sovereignty, sin, and suffering. Those are pretty heavy topics, and they, they're, they're saturated in the rest of these chapters, but it's from a human perspective. Now, that doesn't mean, listen to me, that doesn't mean that everything we're going to listen to is now wrong. No. In fact, much of what the three friends say is true. True about God, it's true. It's just that it comes from a very human and limited perspective. Here's what you got to remember from here on out, including Job chapter 3. None of these people know what you know from chapters 1 and 2. None of them know what has happened in heaven, but we do. None of them know how the story's going to end, but we do. And when you're 
perspective is limited that way, well, then you're obviously not going to always say things that are accurate or true, are you? Very human perspective. In fact, listen to this. Some think that even though the adversary, the devil, is never again heard from directly entirely in the book of Job, the echo of his hostility can still be heard in the accusations of his three friends. I think that observation is really true because we've already seen that his wife has all but quoted the devil without knowing it. And the adversary is the accuser and he's wanting to bring accusations. And what do the comforters become? They become accusers. So take a moment right now and just remind ourselves that when we have an adversarial, accusatory, judgmental words and attitude towards others, whose side are we on? Okay, say something so that I know you're awake. Whose side are you on? The adversary side. You're on the adversary side. So that's interesting. Okay, number four. Job is not so much praying to God or pleading with his friends in chapter 3 as he is expressing deep despair. I think this is interesting, and uh, I'm always hesitant to make observations that I've never seen in any other commentary, but I do think you can study the Bible for yourself and see things that others haven't commented on. And while I do think Job 3 could be seen as a prayer of sorts, when you really look at Job 3, he doesn't address his friends, and he doesn't say you directed towards God. Now, he's going to, the next time he speaks in, in, in chapter 6, he's going to speak directly to his three friends, and he's going to end up speaking to God. But here, what he's doing is emoting. He's, he's dumping. You ever been there? This is an emotional eruption. Who are you talking to, Job? No one, because I don't think no one understands or cares right now. I just need to say this. Are you with me? All right. So he's expressing the anguish of his heart to no one in particular. Um, and like I said, later he's going to direct. So here's how the chapter divides up. Job's cry of despair in chapter 3. It divides up into two parts. Verses 1 through 10, he is cursing. He is cursing the day he was born. He's not cursing God. Satan said he'll curse God. He, he's not cursing God. He may be getting close, but he's not. He's cursing the day he was born in light of his present despair. And then from verses 11 through 26, he's crying. So he's cursing and he's crying. Very uplifting. Okay, Very uplifting. Crying that he cannot die to escape. Now, when I say he's cursing, in chapter... Um, in chapter 3, when I say he's cursing in verses 1 through 10, curses are really wishes. I wish this would happen. You know, uh, if, if someone says, God damn you, they are basically saying, I wish this God would do this to you. You know, and, and really all cursing, what we think of just cursing, okay? And all through here, he's basically saying, I wish this would happen. If you look in your, in, in your Bibles, the word let and may are all in these verses. Let this happen. May this happen. 
I, I, I wish this would happen. He's not cursing God, but he's cursing the fact that he's still alive to experience such suffering. Here's what he's saying. My despair, my despair is so great. I wish I could just, I, I, I wish I had never been born. My heartbreak is greater than any of the blessings I've enjoyed in the past. And let me tell you, Job had a life full of great blessings. Can you imagine how great his suffering was for him to think of all those blessings and say, you know what, I wish I had never been born. So I wish I had never been born. He's crying that he cannot escape his present despair. In verses 11 through 26, what dominates 11 through 26 is five times Job asks the question that you and I ask when we're suffering, why? Five times he says, why? 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 This is what he's crying. This is the question, listen to me, this is the question that can literally drive you crazy. And this is what he's focused on. He's saying this, my despair is so great, I wish I could just die to escape it. It's greater than any hope I see in the future. So he's looking at the past and saying, my suffering's so great, I wish I had never been born. There is nothing good in my life in the past. And then he's looking to the future and he's saying, I don't see any hope there either. I wish I could die right now. So let's look at Job's cry of despair that curses the day of his birth and cries, I wish I could just die. I'm going to call what he's going through despair. I think we could call it depression, but that word's been so analyzed and is so characterized and, and, and even criticized in our culture that I don't want to limit what we're talking about to simply that or only that, but I think it includes that. But turn to chapter 6, verse 26. And I just want to show you that the next time Job speaks, this is how he describes what he's doing in chapter 3. Look at Job 6, uh, 25 and 26. Look at 6, 25 and 26. How painful are honest words. But what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in what? In despair belong to the wind. He's saying, look, I'm just being honest and I am in despair. And in, in, to be honest with you, don't put a lot of weight in what I'm saying because I just have an emotional eruption right now. Deal with it is basically what he's saying. All right. So we're going to see two things that despair does. There's two things that it does. And we're not trying to understand Job chapter 3. Because that's where you get in trouble when you try to understand despair. You don't understand it. You relate to it. You sympathize with it. And so here, we're not going to so much understand Job 3. We're going to try to relate to it and see if we can relate to our own despair better and if we can relate to this despair of others. I'm telling you right up front, this week, and, and it won't be next, it will be in two weeks when we finish this, there's not going to be closure. There's no closure in Job chapter 3, so I would be a fool to try to bring closure to this lesson. Are, are you with me? There's not going to be three, four, five easy steps to deal with despair. But I think you're going to find comfort in this week, in the end of this lesson, if you'll just be open to receiving it.
So here's the first thing that despair does. Number one, despair breeds a desire for death. Despair breeds a desire for death. In a sense, you could put Job chapter 3 and just call it Job's death wish. Job's death wish. And here's how you can divide the chapter. I already told you one way with uh, that it's a curse and it's a lament. Another way to divide it is Job has three wishes here, three desires that are all, all born out of despair. Verses 1 through 10, he basically says, I wish I had never been born. I wish I had never been born. Let's read it. Afterward, that's after seven days of silence, after months of sitting on the garbage dump outside the city, after seven days of his friends just looking at him, afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was to be born. And the night which said, A boy is conceived. Basically saying, I, didn't, I wish I had not only been born, I wish I had never even been conceived. And he sees life as beginning at conception. May that day be darkness. See the, see the may and the let and the let, 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 let. These are all wishes. May the day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine to it. Notice he's not directing it to God. He's, just, he's speaking about God in the third person. He's just easy moding. Let darkness and black gloom claim, claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Wipe it off the calendar, he's saying. Let it, come in, let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. In other words, I wish I had never been conceived. Let no joyful shout enter into it. Oh, a boy has been conceived. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. What he's saying is he's, he's just talking crazy talk, and he's just saying, look, you know, those of you that think you're magicians and, and can control things and put curses on things, well, if you want to curse something, then curse the day I was born. And Leviathan was like a, 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 a mythological uh, a reference, a, a mythological sea monster who is able to swallow the sun and the moon. And he's saying like, hey, if you believe in all that stuff, then go tell Leviathan to swallow the day I was born. All right? doesn't mean he believes in those things. He's just saying, anybody that has any power and influence, wipe this day off the map, off the calendar. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened. Let it wait for light, but have none. Neither let it see the breaking dawn. And now here's verse 10. Why am I saying this? Why do I wish this? Why do I desire it? Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Despair breeds a desire that I wish I had never been born. And then he takes it further. In verses 11 through 19, he says, I wish at birth. Well, if, if, if I, I did get conceived, so I know I'm talking. I, did, I was born, but I wish I would have been stillborn. I wish I had been stillborn. Look at verses 11 through 19. Why did I not die at birth? Now he's starting to say why. Why? 
Why? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? And why the breasts that I should suck? When a baby was born, it was placed on the knees of the father and he received his child and blessed the child. And then the child would be handed off to the mother who would then suckle the child. And he's saying, why did that not happen? Why wasn't I just thrown in a garbage dump like many do today? And abandon. For now, I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept and I would have been at rest. With kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who were filling their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never saw light. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. The prisoners are at ease together. They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now, look at those verses. Look at verses 7. Look at verse uh, 13. He says, I would have been at rest. Look at verse 17. All the raging would cease. The weary are at rest. Look at 18, the prisoners are at ease. Look at 19, the slave is free. What does Job want? He wants what we all want when we're in despair. He wants rest. He wants quietness. He wants the turmoil to go away. And the only hope he sees for that is in having never been born. But he was born. And he wasn't stillborn. And so in verses 20 through 26, Job says, Well, if all that isn't gonna, didn't happen, I wish I could die right now. I wish I could die right now. And look at verses 20 through 26. And there he goes again. Why? Focusing on why will drive you crazy. Why is a light given to him who suffers? and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden treasure. I, more than a million dollars. Relief of simply dying to get out of this. Who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? Now, there's the word that the adversary used, and he said to God, you've hedged him in with a hedge of protection. And Job's now, from his perspective, saying, God, you've hedged me in with a hedge of restriction. I can't get out of this mess. You've boxed me in. And look at verse 24. For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. And then here's the bottom line. Here's the despair. And here's why he desires death. For I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. Wow. That's some heavy-duty stuff. And I'll just be honest with you, it's heavy-duty stuff that many of us and many churches are not really prepared to handle. 
And so I want to make some very important statements about suicide. And, and, and so you see in your notes, desiring death versus committing suicide. Because if you don't read this quite right, you're going to get the wrong impression. So let me make four observations. I'm no psychologist, psychiatrist. I'm a pastor, teacher, theologian. And so what I give you is a biblical perspective. It's not the last word. It's not all the words. But it's, I think, something that's good to stop and think about what Job is saying and what he's not doing. Number one, suicide is taking God's sovereign right over life and death into one's own hand. Suicide is taking God's sovereign right over life and death into one's own hand. Job is not doing that. Job will not do that. Suicide is the difference between desiring death and doing something about it. Are you with me? That's probably about as simple as it can be. Suicide is the difference between desiring death, which Job did, and then doing something about it, which Job did not. Suicide is the sin of self-murder. And it's wrongly taking the life of another. That's what murder is. Murder is wrongly taking the life of another, and suicide is wrongly taking your own life. Exodus 20.13, Leviticus 24.17, God forbids the taking of life wrongly, whether it's yours or another's. God has not given us the right and authority to take our own life. That's his right and that's his authority, which is why Job is despairing. Because the guy who's in charge of my life is allowing it to go on. Why? 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 Well, here's, here's the good news. Because he had a purpose that was good and gracious. Job just didn't know it. We do for Job, but guess what? We don't always have the answers for us. And so when we're where Job is, and we don't know why God's allowed something that is causing havoc and heartbreak, we need to trust that it's, the purpose is just as good, just as gracious as it was for Job. Number two, suicide is never presented as an acceptable, acceptable alternative for believers in the Bible. In fact, there's only six suicides. Some say seven, but uh, Samson's uh, death could be seen as a martyrdom. I have the passages there listed for you. Uh, it's never presented as acceptable. They're committed. Uh, the, the, there's only six suicides recorded in the Bible, and all of them are committed by ungodly people or under ungodly influence. And of course, the most infamous is Judas himself, who betrayed our Lord. On the other hand, very godly people who, like Job, wished they could die but never took the matter into their own hands. We're going to see in a moment, Job's not alone being a godly person that says, I wish I had never been born and I wish I could die. Jeremiah, Elijah, there are others. Number three, suicide is a horrible, horrible, and I spent many minutes trying to figure out what's the best word. I, I, it, it, there's no word for it. It's a horrible sin against God and loved ones, but it's not the unforgivable sin. It is horrible, it is horrendous, but it's not unforgivable. Now, why you say that? Well, I simply cannot describe the horrible consequence 
consequences that suicide leaves in the wake. Feelings of betrayal, feelings of anger, feelings of rejection. If they loved me, they wouldn't have done this. Confusion, despair, lifelong shame. It just goes on and on. But the person in despair sees it as their way out. But it's not unforgivable. Every sin that Jesus died for is paid for and under the blood. Amen? 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That is God's ideal will for all of us. But then he immediately says, and I'm so glad he did, And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's not us who are righteous, it's Him who is righteous. And because I have His righteousness, even if I sin, I am saved, if I'm trusting my advocate. And He Himself is the propitiation, which simply means the satisfaction for God's wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Listen, Jesus, if you're trusting Jesus, you have His righteousness. And His death paid for every sin, past, future, and present, even the most horrendous sin that you could think of. And the end of Romans 8 is still true. For one who commits suicide, neither life as a believer, neither life or death, any kind of death, can, cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, granted, we should take Romans 8, 37 through 39 as our hope to persevere in our despair. But the fact is, if we don't persevere, that verse promises that nothing can separate a believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, number four, suicide is deceptive presented by the adversary as a means of finding relief but only results in eternal regret suicide is deceptively listen there's no it, 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 listen Satan is a murderer and he was a murderer from the beginning with Cain and Abel and he's a murderer to the end and the the temptation the desire the the, the doing of taking your life is never of God. It's always of Satan. Listen, nothing would have pleased the adversary more. Nothing would have grieved God more and pleased the devil more than if Job had taken his life. In fact, remember what God had to say? God had to say, look, you can do to him whatever you want, but you can't take his life. Why? Because ultimately, that's what the devil wants. He wants to end your influence he wants you to think that by ending your suffering, you will somehow escape the regret of what you have done. Now, listen, those in despair, you've got to understand this. They want relief, they want rest, and they want peace. But remember this, relief is never found in taking your own life. Because as an unbeliever, what will it do? It will seal your destiny in hell. But as a believer, you say, yeah, but as a believer, it will seal my destiny in heaven. Yes, and for the rest of your life and eternity and for those you love, your last act will be an act of rebellion 
against the God who said you have no right to take your life. It will seal your destiny in heaven as a believer with regret at this final act of rebellion against your Lord. Yes, it's forgivable, but it is foolish. It is foolish. Here's the bottom line. Job is saying, in light of all that's happened to me, and in light of my present circumstance, as he scrapes himself with a pottery, a cracked piece of pottery, I wish I had never lived at all, but since I am alive, I wish I would never live another day. It's that bad. So, what's the first thing that despair does to us? It breeds a desire for death in which God has... But God has a purpose, and you can persevere by His grace. Now, where's all this kind of talk coming from? Why is Job talking this way? It comes from the deep, dark pit of despair. And here's the second thing that despair does. It brings distorted thinking. It brings distorted thinking. And we're going to go through six ways that despair or depression distorts our thinking. We're going to look at the first one today, and then we'll do the other five on the next lesson. I love this quote by John Piper. He says, We all should fortify ourselves against the dark hours of depression by cultivating a deep distrust of the certainties of despair. I love that. Despair is relentless in the certainties of its pessimism. I am convinced it will never get better. And the fact is, you are wrong. I am convinced there's no way out of this. And the fact is, you are wrong. You've got to fortify yourself. So here's, here's six ways despair distorts our thinking. Number one, distorted thinking. Strong believers or true believers don't get, ever get depressed. Now, this is not so much what the, the, the despairing Christians think this, but sadly, Christians think of despair and depression. We think this way, I'm a believer, I don't get depressed. Or, I'm a strong believer, so I don't get depressed. Or we think, other people get depressed, but I'm stronger than they are. Or, I'm stronger than depression. I do not, will not, ever get depressed. But here's the biblical reality. Even the strongest, strongest believers despair and some actually suffer severe doubts of depression. Now, I want to show you a video, and it'll, it'll take a while. Um, but I want to show you uh, two godly men, two men that are godly men, pastors. John Piper is one, and John MacArthur is other. Uh, many of us have benefited from both these men and their ministry, but they are two different men. And they're asked the question, what do you do when you get depressed? I think it will be worth watching. So, uh, if, so if Chris, if you get the light there for me. When you personally get discouraged and uh, want to throw in the towel, where do you go biblically? Is there a particular passage or book that you find yourself returning to over and over and again? And, and where do you go outside the Bible? Is there a particular author or book that you return to over and over again when you're discouraged or downcast? Well, I, I don't tend to be that way. 
Um, I don't know why. I'm not really a kind of a, I'm not a melancholy type of person. I, uh, I just move to the next responsibility. Um, there's no time for me to sit and feel sorry or feel bad. There's too much to do. Um, I mean, I, I'll sometimes get, get discouraged, but the next task looms large. People have no idea what it is to preach week after week after week after week, year after year, decade after decade, to the same people <laughs> who have recorded everything you've ever said. <laughs> and then to speak in chapel at a college and chapel at a seminary and work on a book and do... For me, this is the track the Lord has put me on. There's no, I don't have time to sit and if I have those kinds of moments, fleeting as they may be, I always think of the Apostle Paul, or I think of some of my personal heroes. My mind often goes to William Carey when all of his manuscripts burned. Or it goes to Tyndale, who is a particular treasure in my mind, who's sitting in prison, about to die, and wants somebody to bring him his the needle and thread so he can sew up his leggings because he's cold. Um, I've stood by Robert Morrison's grave and cried in China. So I think of you know, but but I it's it's not a long process for me because there's just a relentless. I preach Sunday morning, uh, one message, Sunday night, another message, and usually every week somewhere else uh, another time, so, or, you know, in one of our ministries. So I don't seem to have time to let those things get me down. And every new opportunity, when I prepare a message, I am so still to this day, if not more, infused with the thrill of what I've learned and the eagerness to preach that, that it, ta- it drags me past whatever the... Um, you know, and I, I even when I preach a really dumb sermon, and all I want to do is hide somewhere. Um, the sooner I can start working on next week, the better, because I will leave that behind, and and I will move into that new opportunity. And and for me, it's just getting into the Word and digging in and, and discovering what I need to know for the next ministry. The Lord's wired you a little differently. Yeah, we'll, we'll take heart. Not everybody's like that. <laughs> um, I, I know that. Yeah, and, and you're very fortunate. So here's one guy who get, gets really discouraged. Um, and I got plenty of time to get discouraged. Anything. <laughs> um, um, I pray probably the prayer keep me and preserve me as often as I pray any prayer and I mean keep me saved because I think God uses means to cause us to persevere and I mean keep me in the ministry I don't want to be one of these short lived people and keep me married don't want to wreck it that way and keep me I pray that now unto him who is able to keep you I pray that blessing down on me a lot and the Lord has spared me but 
stirring this. I'm 61. He's older than I am a little bit. Um, we have passed through seasons, and there is something to men in midlife crisis. I remember sitting in, uh, where was Ben Patterson, pastor out there? Irvine? So he's sitting in Ben Patterson's house. He's on vacation. He's the pastor of Irvine. He planted the church. And they gave us their house so if we'd preach for him on Sunday and have a little week's vacation there. And I remember, I was 40, sitting on the steps halfway through vacation, sobbing. Noel comes down the steps. What's wrong? I said, I don't have a clue. Sounds like PMS. <laughs> And I, I just, I just said, I, I don't know if I want to stay. I don't know if I want. To, I just don't. I don't have a clue why I'm so sad. Um, and that season lasted several years. And the grace was that I could still function. It lasted several years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've, I've met people like him before. I had a church chairman named Rollin Erickson, and Rollin would ask me, define depression. Just, he didn't have a clue. He just, it was like Gesornenplatt. <laughs> so if you, if you don't know it, you don't know it. You're just, you're okay. It's just, stay there. Well, I, I feel like I'm missing a great experience. So. I was listening to an author the other day, and they said, what's the best thing about writing? And she said, the last page. And, and so what's great about depression is the light at the end of the tunnel. Nobody, nobody enjoys being depressed in the middle of it. But one more thing as far as um, solutions go. I have spent, goodness knows, how much effort developing a theology of suffering. This conference exists to answer that question. <laughs> um, I, I want to last. I want to stand. I want to get through the discouraging times. I want to help you not be fickle, wishy-washy, drop out, trade your life away, swap wives, leave jobs, trade churches. I just don't want you to be that way. So, so make a conference. And, and we're talking about this, this thing started tonight with these endless sufferings of the Apostle Paul. So he said, I go to Paul and I say, Amen, me too. I, I look at the, the dot, I look at first, second Corinthians 1, 9. We were so unbearably crushed. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And I, I preach that to myself. Here I am feeling that way. I feel like, well, just, it's just so, so nice to go to heaven right now. Just let me go to heaven. Noel can take care of Talitha. It'll all work out. Just, let me go. And, uh, and at, that, at that moment, if, if the answer comes back, no, if your heart just keeps beating, then, then you have to do theology. And I'm, I'm wired that way. Anyway, I do theology. I, I say, God struck Paul down in order that he might not rely on himself, but on the God who raises the dead. He wanted him to be desperate. So you're desperate, so he must have a purpose for you. And I, I just preached myself through a theology of suffering back into, I hope, more usefulness.
So just keep on working on your sovereignty of God peace and your evil of the world peace. That's the, that's the greatest issues in life. How can God be sovereign and, and there be so much horror in the world? Including the horror in your own life that's making you so discouraged. What encourages... <laughs> this man has known much suffering. It just doesn't tend to come from within. It comes from without. I think, uh, I, I think it's not the things I feel. It's how that processes in me. Because all of the spiritual battles, all the disappointments, all the griefs, all the heartbreaks... I, I don't know, I'm wired to deal with those in a different way. I can't imagine just sitting and crying and not knowing why I was doing it. But, but, I, but that's not to say that I don't feel the same longings on the inside. It's how they get, it's how they get processed, I think. Um, because the spiritual battle for me is the same as it is for anyone. And I feel at this point in my life, in, in many ways, that I've escaped by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. That I'm here... But there would have been, there could have been a thousand points at which, through my life, it all would have been, it all would have been ashes. Uh, it's not to say that that's not a reality, or that 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 I don't, I'm not aware of that. It's the way I deal with that is uh, differently, different. I don't know why. It's just the way I'm wired, I guess. As you both think back on your ministries or when you die someday, how do you want people to remember you? What do you want them to say about you? What do you want to be known for? Do you ever think about that? Yes. Every funeral. So having thought about it more than he has, I'll give you some time. Um, I'm not trying to plan my post-death. No, this is not a plan. You don't get to plan it. But you do get to think about it. That's just classic, and uh, and it's a reminder that uh, first of all, was one man right and one man wrong? Was one man of greater faith and another man of lesser faith? No. Was one man in sin and the other not? No. 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 I probably shouldn't, but I'll ask you: if you were discouraged, which man would you want to go to? And it would probably be good to spend time with both. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I can't relate to uh, Dr. MacArthur. But uh, what's interesting is both these guys have similar, uh, if not the same kind of theology, the high view of God and high view of people. So I, I wanted you to see that because, and we won't, we won't go through it today, um, but we're going to go through not only men in Scripture, but we're going to go through men in church history, 
And I'm sorry, ladies, I didn't come across examples. I'm sure there are examples of uh, women as well. And we're going to see that strong, true believers do go through times of despair and depression. And I'm going to, I'm, what we're going to do, and, and, and we'll do this next time, I'm going to read you some of their words. I'm going to read you some of what they say and how they do what uh, Piper was talking about, how they preach to themselves, how they apply Scripture to themselves while not denying what they're going through. But let me, and, and we'll even look at our Lord at a sinless Son of God who was man. And we'll see that Jesus knows despair. Jesus knows what it is for the heavens to seem as brass and for God to not answer. Because the classic cry of despair is not Job chapter 3. It's Jesus on the cross where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing that, Jesus sanctifies the question of why. Jesus asked it. And it's okay for you to ask it. The problem is when you become preoccupied with it. The problem becomes when you demand an answer that may not be forthcoming until you get to heaven. And even then, when you get there, it won't matter because you will be in the presence of who of who cares for you and whose purpose for you is meaningful. Let me end with the last question you have on your notes. Is Job a positive or negative example of despair? And I want, here's what I want you to get today is he's a realistic one. Is he positive or negative? Wrong question. He is a realistic one while still being godly, godliest people in the Bible. All serious Christians, and again, I, we will go through this. We will, we, I will show you this. Experience spiritual depression, physical, emotional, mental depression to greater or lesser degrees. The issue then is not that you, that you experience spiritual depression, how you respond to it. The issue is not that Job had a chapter 3 in his life. And yours may not be a chapter 3. It may be like Piper. It may be chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 in your life. The question is not how long your chapter is. You know, MacArthur's, he had a verse. Others may have a book. But the question is, how are you going to respond to it? And the reality is this. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Your time of despair is meant to be a channel of God's comfort 
to others. But you have to persevere. You've got to trust God. You've got to receive His comfort so that through you, your dark night of the soul can bring light to the darkness of others. Amen? And that is one reason that God allows it. Because He has a purpose for you and your suffering that is greater than what you know, greater than what anyone knows, but will be used for His glory to comfort others. But you've got to let Him comfort you now. And those of us sitting on the ash heap with our friends or loved one need to know how to direct people to God for that comfort. Amen? And again, this isn't dog on Dr. MacArthur Day, but if you really don't have time for suffering and despair, it's going to be very difficult for you to be a channel of comfort to others. You, I don't know. I don't know how that works, and I don't know how that's going to be. But God wants us um, to be that kind of channel. Amen? I hope you're encouraged today. I hope you're encouraged. And so come back, and we will look at other real-life people who were great men of God, but had great battles with depression. Let's pray. Father, we come and uh, we're humbled in how you make us. It, it, we, we laugh at this because it's so familiar to us. We're wired differently. Our brain chemistry is different. Our personalities, our physiological, psychological, emotional makeup. But every one of us is a snowflake with the imprint and the image of God upon us. And we are thankful that as our Savior, you became a human being. And you expressed the wail and the roar of despair and the sense of abandonment and separation from your Heavenly Father. And you did it because of our sin and our rebellion and our lack of faith. And so we're grateful that we serve a real, sinless, human, but also divine Savior. And may your comfort pour out on those who have wounds from the past, those who are struggling in the present, and those who are fearful of what might happen in the future May you comfort us with all comfort, that we may be a channel of comfort to the many who are struggling in our culture, many who need to be invited to Easter, many who need a word of hope, a hope that is living, resurrected, powerful, and greater than the depths and pits of despair. We are a grateful people.